0: We are excited this Christmas season to uh, be talking and emphasizing the birth of Christ from the perspective that he is a king. Um, He was a prophesied and coming king, and there's a long wait for him, a long preparation in the Old Testament. And um, one of the things that's happening in the book of Judges that we're just coming out of, um, when you get to the end of the book of Judges, it's highlighting all of the chaos in the land by reminding us that there was no king. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes, and there was no king. They just had these judges, and they were pitiful. <laughs> they were uh, judges who were rising up to deliver the people, but um, they didn't have the spiritual wherewithal to leave a lasting spiritual impact, and they were looking for a king. And what we see in the very next book, and we're going to go there in the book of Ruth, is that King David is eventually born, uh, The book of Ruth begins in the days when the judges ruled, and the last word of the book of Ruth is David. So you kind of go from this chaotic period of the judges where every man does that which is right in his own eyes, and there's no king in the land, to getting a king, but that doesn't solve their problem because it's not an earthly king that we need. It's a different kind of king. And um, today, what we're going to see is that that Christ is, is a different kind of king in that he's, he's not just prophesied and coming. He, he's a suffering and sacrificial king. He's not a king who's going to come and set everything right immediately. Um, there's, there's this coming of the king, but in, in his first coming, he's going to redeem. In his second coming, he's going to rule. That's why Advent, the expectation of Advent, um, is so good for us because We can see the anticipation that came um, until the first coming. But we live with seeing how it is fulfilled in anticipation of the second coming. We see him coming to redeem. We are anticipating him coming to establish his rule. And putting those together, it's the the king who's going to rule, who is going to suffer and, and sacrifice for us. And that's a part of the whole Old Testament narrative. Um, as I was preparing for this message on isaiah fifty three and i 've done messages on isaiah fifty three uh, numerous times at different settings, even for Christmas before, um, I-, I ran across this statement orienting us to the Old Testament. This is part of the Dallas Seminary doctrinal statement. It says this: "We believe that all the scriptures center about the Lord Jesus Christ in his person and work in his first and second coming, and hits that no portion even of the Old Testament is properly read or understood until it leads to him. Even the book of Judges, which is is demonstrating to us the the world falling apart, all the wheels coming off, and and the junk that gets messed up in our lives, and how God graciously delivers when we cry out, even when we're not repentant, he's so faithful to his people that he delivers. Even that book eventually leads to Christ, not directly. Um, I'm not going to try to draw any parallels um, between Ehud and Christ, and, and Gideon and Christ, and Samson and Christ. It's just not how you're supposed to do it, because it's the bigger picture that is saying they were trying, they were uh, warriors and chieftains, they were they were doing what they were doing, but they weren't the answer to the problem. The answer to the problem comes with Christ. So So the whole narrative leads to Christ, not just his first coming. Everything doesn't just lead to Christ's redemption and his death on the cross. Everything leads to his redemption and his rule. It's his first and second coming. Um, Bob Chisholm, who I'm using his commentary on Judges, um, he writes this in a study on Isaiah 53 to kind of clarify that the whole Bible leads to Christ, but he reminds us this does not mean that one should arbitrarily allegorize the scriptures or subject passages to typological interpretive fancy in an effort to conjure up their Christological import. It does mean, however, that the entire Bible, including the Old Testament, finds its full significance in Christ's person and work. Um, Everything is fulfilled in Christ, but that doesn't mean you can just free-associate anything, okay? You you can't just go... um, Samson was a champion, Jesus is a champion, so Samson's like Jesus. No, Samson, don't use Samson, okay? When we get there, you'll get why. Don't use Samson to parallel to Jesus. Yes, he conquered an enemy, and Jesus conquered an enemy of death, okay? Nice parallel creativity, not interpretation, okay? Um, That's what he's saying. The whole Old Testament is getting us to Jesus, but every single thing, don't free associate in the Old Testament. However, there are some places in the Old Testament, that the New Testament explicitly makes clear, yes, this was about Jesus. And Isaiah 53 is one of those passages. Isaiah 53, it's actually the last part of 52, is a part of what is four or five servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And this one um, is the central and kind of the climax of these messages that Isaiah is bringing about um, the Messiah coming. And, and the Messiah in this passage is called the Servant of the Lord, and that raises a few problems, uh, particularly if you're Jewish. Uh, Friends Delich, um, who's an Old Testament commentator, he's got a 12-volume series uh, on uh, the Old Testament called Kyle and Delich. um he lays out real clearly what I want to show you that kind of everyone notices. Isaiah 53 talks about the Servant of the Lord. Let me tell you, the Servant of the Lord is the nation of Israel. I listed a bunch of verses up there, and one without a punctuation, so don't know what's going on there. Uh, Should be a semicolon. All of those verses make it really clear that Israel is the servant of the Lord. Um, And the Jewish nation, a large part of Judaism, interprets all of the things that we we ascribe to the Messiah, they interpret that to the nation. The nation suffers. The nation is the one who's going to rule, not Jesus. Um, And they they see that, and there's a legitimacy to that because the nation is the servant of the Lord. There are those within Judaism who would say that it's not just the whole nation, it's the faithful part of the nation, the the remnant, those who are still living according to Torah, those who are still um, looking forward to God's work in the world. And sometimes that is just kind of a major work, some within the Hasidic community of the Jews would still be looking for specifically a Messiah. Um, And this kind of threefold approach to Isaiah 53, what we're going to see today, it's what you know, some Jews would say, all this Isaiah 53 is about the nation of Israel. And they would, they take it very seriously. That the nation suffers. The nation is going to provide kind of the way and the path forward, and God is going to glorify the nation. Some would say, no, it's only faithful Jews. Some would say, and the Christian community very clearly says, no, Isaiah 53 is really about the Messiah. Um, let me show you the New Testament passage. You don't need to write all these down, but this is all the references to Isaiah 53, and the New Testament passages that apply them to Jesus. Okay, so this is not a fanciful cartwheel-free association for me. Of this is like this. This is this is the Old Testament, and the New Testament says that's Jesus. It's very clear. Um, out on the um, connection center, I uh, have a little piece. It's just two pages that I reduced uh, from one of my systematic theology classes with the men on Thursday morning. Um, it's two pages that are Old Testament predictions of Christ's incarnation, and on the front I've got Christ in the Psalms, and on the back I've got all the Old Testament predictions in the, in the Old Testament that the New Testament clearly ascribed to Jesus Christ. Uh, you might find that interesting and something you can look through over Christmas, but we're going to specifically look at, at Isaiah 52, very last part of it, uh, and then all of Isaiah 53, and see how this is clearly the prediction of the Messiah but what it says about him. So we're going to start off in the end of chapter 52. It's actually verses 13, 14, and 15. And we're going to see kind of the theme. It starts off by reminding us that Christ's suffering leads to glory. He'll be exalted, and that's how it starts. Uh, By the way, the Jewish nation loves this part, and they accept verses 14 and 15. He'll be exalted, but his exaltation will follow his humiliation, the, the humiliation, they'll be suffering first. Here, here's how the verses read. He'll be exalted first. It starts off, behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Um, this is the end of the story. Jesus Christ, high and lifted up and exalted. Um, we get some glimpses of that, and we exalt him as... Uh, as, as a child, like the Magi did, like the shepherd did, um, I'm not going to go there. There's a little eight-minute clip on the shepherds that the Chosen has done. Get your Kleenex out, Right, watch the eight minutes, and it'll undo you. Um, we exalt him. Even as a baby, we, we have exalted him. He, he was exalted during his life and lifted up on high at the Mount of Tr- Transfiguration. He was exalted when he was resurrected and in his ascension. But all of this gets fulfilled ultimately not with his coming the first time to redeem, but his coming the second time to rule. He will be exalted and he will be lifted up. But that follows some humiliation. Just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will uh, startle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Um, It's shocking what happens to him, and people won't get it. People will close their mouths and just go, I don't understand What's happening? Because this exalted king is being mistreated so horribly. There's so much suffering and humiliation. He's going to be exalted. He should be exalted, but he is suffering. This baby that we exalt and we worship, we sing songs about, we have extra services to celebrate. This baby's going to, before any of that happens, he's going to be humiliated and and suffer. Um, The passage is going to move on into chapter 53 and say Christ's suffering was offensive. It was unbelievable, and a lot of people didn't even see it for what it was. It was unbelievable and unrecognized. The passage reads like this. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? (laughs) Nobody believes it. Nobody, Nobody believes This little baby born to peasant parents who were so poor that on the list of offerings they were supposed to give when they took him to the temple for the first time, they gave the poor people's offering. A poor peasant couple with a tattered reputation because she was pregnant before they got married. (laughs) This poor peasant couple, who's going to believe that's the king? That's why God started with shepherds and foreigners. (laughs) Shepherds showed up, and people from a far distant land, they're the first people we see worshiping the king. And it continued. He he was unrecognized, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground, nothing you would have paid much attention to. He's no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him uh, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and and we did not esteem him. No one recognized it. He 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 was coming up out of dry ground from a poor family, raised in um, uh, a city with a bad reputation. And and no one noticed. Oh, this is the one who's coming. There was no announcement. There was no um, no fanfare. I mean, I guess unless angels singing to shepherds in the fields, that's pretty big. But but most of the people didn't see that. And so his his suffering was it was unrecognized. He he arrived, and most people didn't make anything of it. And his suffering, though, is going to be vicarious. I know it's a big theological word. Let me explain it for you. Vicarious means on behalf of someone else. It's it's a word Christians should understand, vicarious. Um, it, it, It means that his suffering was not for himself. He didn't suffer because he deserved it. He suffered because we deserved it, and he suffered for us. His suffering was punishment for us, and his suffering is redemptive for us. It's redemptive in that it takes care of our problem. It takes care of our offense. It takes care of our debt. It takes care of our sin. It takes care of our distance from God. His suffering was a punishment that we deserved. And it brought us back into connection with him. This baby that was born, this King Jesus that everyone's waiting for in the Old Testament, that the book of Judges says there was no king, and and everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes, so chaos was reigning. And then they get a human king, and that doesn't fix it very much. But when this king comes, he's going to take our punishment, and his his death is going to be redemptive for us. The passage reads like this: Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We we looked, and and the people who witnessed it said He deserved it. But what He was doing is He was carrying our griefs and our sorrows. He was taking the punishment that that should have. Caused us to grieve, should have caused us to sorrow. Um, He bore them. He took them on himself. And it redeemed us. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. Our transgressions, our iniquities, the chastening that we deserved. And by his scourgings, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Um, all of our wrongdoing, all of our shortcomings, all of our failures, all of our sins, all of that gets put on him. And, and it heals us. It heals us in a number of different ways. It takes care of our spiritual problem of our iniquities and our sins, but it also is going to heal us eventually of all of the the weaknesses of our human bodies. When I was praying for Jordan Cruz this past week, I was praying that God would heal him, confident that God would heal him. Maybe not in this life, maybe with a new body. And so I prayed confidently. I just didn't know the timing. When people are sick, pray confidently. God will heal people. Now, you might want to just add, do it in front of me, please just to make your request made known to the Lord, God will heal people. And he'll use um, people along the way, part-time workers at the fitness center, and um, EMTs who come over from the fire department and shock someone's heart, and all the doctors at Conway Regional who made all the right decisions to cool his body down for a few days... God's instrumental in every piece of all of that. And if God had not healed Jordan, um, He will heal him. This passage tells us that. Um, he's going to be healed. But it's not just physical healing. Wrapped all around this is our transgressions, our iniquities, going astray, turning away. Um, all of that is what, what He's paying for. He's, he's He's taking it on himself. It's it's vicarious. (laughs) He suffers for us so that he can take care of all of the problems that we have. And our physical ailments and aging and memory loss, all of that is just a symbolic evidence that we are not fully human before God, but he will make us so. He will make us all that we are meant to be, created fully in the image of God. So Christ, he came, he wasn't recognized, no one made a big deal of him. He's exalted, but that's only after the humiliation. But thank God this suffering is accepted before God. He suffered and endured it silently, and he suffered in spite of being completely innocent. Um. Three trials, by the way. Three trials, all three trials for Jesus declared him innocent. The passage says this He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He willingly took all of this, knowing that he could have called down all of the hosts of heaven to take care of the people who were scourging him, who were placing him on the cross, who were nailing him there. He could have, after hanging out for probably 36 years with people like you and I, who were frail and fickle and um, un- inconsistent in our commitment to him. After 36 years, I mean, I've been around 60 years now, and I'm, I'm tired of it. <laughs> people, including me, disappoint me all the time. I'm not sure I would have laid my life down for me. But he endured it silently, didn't open his mouth. He didn't, he didn't say, I don't deserve this. He didn't say, I'm innocent. He didn't even say, I'm doing this for these other people. You know that, right? He didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like sheep, and like sheep that is silent before its shears so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? No one's even considering this is really what's happening. For the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due, that's why he was being uh, treated this way. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Um, Both the thieves on the cross but he was buried in a rich man's tomb because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Even in the midst of the pinnacle of the unjust treatment that he was getting that led to his death, when he was completely innocent, he didn't protest. Now in the garden, he said, God, if there's another way, you know, let's figure this out, but, but I'm willing to do whatever you say is the way we need to handle this problem to redeem all these people back to you, and it worked. His suffering was efficacious. It was effective. It was, it was vicarious and efficacious, two big theological words. It was in our place, and it worked. It was God's will, and it ultimately results in our justification. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. This was God's plan all along. And it was God's plan that he become, and it's specifically here, a guilt offering. Um, Five different sacrifices, I've talked about them endlessly when we went through Leviticus for 28 weeks. Five kinds of sacrifices. There's the, the sin offering that is made uh, for a sin that is um, it is an unknown sin, and it really didn't damage someone, okay? It's a sin. You know you committed a sin, but it didn't cause damage anywhere. There's this guilt or trespass offering. I'm going to come back and talk to it, why it's a little bit different. Those two take care of your sinfulness. Then there's the whole burnt offering, The third offering that would have been offered, it's after your sin is taken care of, um, then you offer the whole burnt offering, which is burning up an entire animal, indication of your entire dedication to the Lord and his full acceptance. You take the animal, you're not bleeding it, you're, you're literally burning it all up because you're saying, I'm fully dedicated and God fully accepts it as the smoke goes up. It's your full dedication, his full acceptance, it's the third offering. The fourth offering is um, when you offer something that you have made. It's uh, some, something that uh, would have been useful in the temple. It's kind of more like the offerings that we give. It's, it's to carry on the ministry. And then the fifth offering was the fellowship and the peace offering. Jesus provides all of these, okay? The fellowship and the peace offering was a, a communal meal. You're not burning everything up. You're actually literally cooking it, and you eat it with the priests and your family and your friends, and you would invite poor people in to join you. Um, And and it, it is the culmination of this because it celebrates the peace. Let me back up here. This trespass offering, it's the offering you give not just for your regular sins, but your sins that damaged other people. Christ has taken on himself our sins that had been offensive to God, damaged God, damaged his reputation, damaged other people, um he has become the guilt offering for us. Uh, the other name for it is the reparation offering because it repairs the damage that was done. Christ repairs all the damage. Um, this passage certainly is reflective a little bit of the Jewish nation. God um, chose them uh, he 's going to bring them back and He's going to bring them back in the sense that the king who's going to rule will be Jewish. They suffered. They've suffered a lot. The remnant in particular has suffered. But we know the whole Bible has pointed us to this is Jesus in his first coming and his second coming. And he'll be exalted, but only after humiliation. Not recognized by people. It was for us, it was effective, and it was God's will, and it solves all of our problems. It gives us hope, it gives us meaning, it gives us a reason to get people around the world. People need to hear this message. It's why we send out shoeboxes, it's why we live our lives hopefully as an example that makes, um, makes our life appealing to others so that we have the, the footing to, to, to share with them what Christ really means. Here's what this passage tells us. Jesus Christ sacrificially gave his life as a substitute for us. Very simple. That's what he did. <laughs> he was born in a manger so that... Um, so that he could ultimately die for us. I don't know if you can see it, it's pretty subtle back there. He was born to die. He was born so he could die so that we would not have to die. He died for our sins so that we don't have to die for them. And it all started in a manger. Not often recognized but it's the most important event that's ever happened in history. So a couple things we can do here. Um, Take time to remember the birth of Christ and remember that it, it led to his suffering for me. He was not just born to rule. He will rule. That's the second advent. We're celebrating the first advent in anticipation of the second advent. And take some time to reflect on the fact that the suffering of Christ is going to lead to his glory, and and yes, he's a he's a baby that we celebrate the birth that started the process. After a long time of anticipation, eventually he'll be glorified, and we need to give him that glory um, in worshiping him as a child, worshiping him in his life, worshiping him with our life, worshiping him with um, the expectation that he will come and set everything right. And we're going to remember that today at Christmas time. Uh, As we think about our king who is suffering and sacrificial, uh, we're going to remember that today through communion. And so, as we always do, there's opportunities for you, there's some prepackaged things down here if you would like. Um, If you're in these middle sections, we're going to ask you to come down the aisle this way and go back there. There's some tables in the back if you're near the back. If you're in the side sections, we're going to ask you to exit that way and return this way. So these aisles here are the return aisles. It just makes things smoother. But but as as we do this at Christmas time, I'm mean, we're in the home stretch here. <laughs> we're remembering the birth of Christ. Let's just remember now. Let's remember that that our King came to suffer and die, and this this represents his suffering and his death for us. And we're supposed to remember and reflect and let this. Um, reorient us to this Christmas season.